Yo, 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 Thought Warriors. Watch and listen to Higher Learning where we dissect the biggest topics in black entertainment, politics, and sports. Twice a week, we react to the most important and timely conversations, often inviting guests to offer unique perspectives. Listen to Higher Learning free only on Spotify. This episode is brought to you by Jiffy Lube. Cars can be a big investment, so it's important to take care of them. I once got a car that I started out with 25,000 miles on, I got it to over 200,000 miles because I took care of it. You know how you take care of a car? You take care of the maintenance, the oil, the brakes, all that stuff. And if you don't, you can have a car just completely fall apart. When your car needs maintenance, head to Jiffy Lube. They provide automotive excellence at speed. Get your oil changed, brakes checked, Tons of other multi-care services. It's all done by expertly trained technicians who actually care about taking care of you and your car. Jiffy Lube, car more. To find coupons and start an instant online estimate, visit jiffylube.com. It's not often we get to welcome somebody into the podcasting ranks. Conan O'Brien, you're doing it. I'm doing it. Have your own podcast. I have my own podcast. I determined, first of all, I may have had some false information. I was told there were very few podcasts out there. Yeah. And um, that I was getting it on the ground floor. <laughs> and uh, so. It's like the, yeah, it's definitely not the ground floor, but we I, need you in the podcast I was world. also told it was a cash cow, that it's just going to throw off that a That might be of, true for you. I don't think so. <laughs> <laughs> it's uh, it's a labor of love. Uh, it was something. Um, it's actually had this concept for a little while ago, which is I have. I had a Christmas party, and I realized everyone at this Christmas party, ninety nine percent of them, and this has been true every year, uh, are people that work for me. I employ them, and I really do like the people I work with, and I'm friendly with them. And I thought. I don't, I got to make some friends. You're in uh, your own work bubble. And yeah, I'm, I got to make some friends. And I, I know a lot of people. I know a lot of celebrities and I like them, but uh, there's never any time. You know, I don't spend much time making friends with them. So this is a quest. I thought, you know, I'll do a podcast and I'll get them in there and just pretty much put them on the spot and say, why did it never happen with us? We... <laughs> We, we get along, we're friendly, uh, what's going on? And it's great. It's funny. I really enjoy it. And they, we end up talking about a lot of funny stuff, but, um, but also some of them are really brutally honest. They're like, no, 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 it's just, there's, uh, it's not going to happen, you know? Um, and also you seem a little tightly wound Conan and it's good. I like that part of it, but, but in there is uh, mixed a lot of great anecdotes and, I do like interviewing people and I like this format. I like being able to uh, talk and not in six minute increments and then have to throw it a commercial. Do you know what I mean? We, I mean, that format is so frustrating in so many ways because it's, how much, how much prep do you do when you have the guest on? Like, do, do you know they're going to hit certain stories? Because it seems like the stuff that especially breaks out from your show is when the guest has surprised you and gone in some crazy direction. Yeah, I always, I learned a long time ago. I grew up um, watching Johnny Carson and it dawned on me that the stuff that always made it into the anniversary shows, this is back when 
in the olden days when late night shows would celebrate. I fucking love the anniversary shows. The anniversary shows. shows. And, and Carson would wear a tuxedo and his yeah. sidekick, Ed McMahon, would wear a tuxedo and they would show these clips. All of the clips were mistakes. Yeah. They were all mistakes. It was never, remember that amazing thing, sketch that we wrote. Greatness, I think in, in late night, when anyone achieves it on any late night show is something gone wrong and the host exploiting it. So I like to have a, probably sort of like a, a good quarterback has a plan. Yeah. You have a plan and then you ditch it the minute the holes aren't where they're supposed to be and you go another way. That's what I think a host should do. Is but you, going, like, your favorite guests are always like the Bill Burr, Norm MacDonald. This yes. might go off the rails really uh, fast. I mean, yeah. I mean, uh, Norm MacDonald, one of the great um, talk show guests of all time. He invented something that, why is there a man doing his taxes in the corner in he's, this podcast? He's typing notes in case we have to do oh, it's breakouts. Just, it's incredible. He's, he's uh, you know, it's very loud. He's audibly <laughs> clicking away. And I really did think- He's you typing have a guy, excitedly. You have a guy in the corner doing the books on the podcast <laughs> while you're doing the podcast. Um, uh, no, Norm MacDonald invented this amazing thing that I've never seen anybody do before or since. It's kind of like he split the atom. It was that revolutionary- Norm would come on and he would, instead of telling you a real story, like if I had you on the show and you're like, hey, Bill, you know, tell me, well, you know, and remember I was living in Chestnut Hill once and you would tell a real story about yeah. what happened to you in your life. Norm tells old jokes as stories that happened to him. Yeah. So I'd be like, Norm, what are you up to? And I mean, really old jokes from like the 1920s. And he'd be like, well, Conan, I don't know if you're aware that I, uh, I purchased a, purchased a farm, Conan. I'd be like, really? You purchased a, yeah, yeah, yeah. I purchased a a farm. Of course I have, uh, of course I have three daughters. And I'm like, you have three daughters? Yeah, I have three daughters on the farm. One very attractive, uh, one not as attractive. And of course the third, not, uh, you know, kind of, well, she's ugly, Conan. She's ugly. (laughs) And I'd be like, "Uh uh-huh. Well, one day uh, this uh, traveling salesman uh, comes to the farm and he says, now, now, Norm, I'll tell you, I tell you. And then it's like, he's telling an old traveling salesman joke. Yeah. And it's, and. But you know about halfway through where no, it's going. No, I, I mean, I usually know, I, I know kind of what he's doing. I'm laughing that he has the balls yeah. to do this. I'm laughing at the audacity. So I don't even care if this joke lands or not. I'm laughing that he's committing to the fact that you know, no, he doesn't have a farm. He doesn't have three daughters. There's yeah. no traveling salesman. Uh, but he doesn't care in a way that is exhilarating and scary at the same time. Mm. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. And, um, and plus he probably has some people in the audience who are taking completely seriously, right? Yes. Yeah. He's got some people thinking- We call them tourists. Yes. We call them <laughs> they're usually from San Bernardino. Uh <laughs> Well, Norm had Norm had the greatest talk show moment in the history of talk shows with Courtney Thorne Smith. That was epic. That was so great, and it's funny because it's lived on. Who knew that we were going to have YouTube eventually? You know where what? We could just God queued up bless, on command. God bless YouTube. I had no idea when those things were happening. I thought we're talking 1994. When those things were happening, I thought, you know, what did I know? I just thought if you were up and you saw it. That means you saw that was an, it. you saw an amazing thing happen, and if you 
Uh, and then maybe if I get to stay on the air long enough, we'll have a one year anniversary show and maybe you'll see it then. But if you're not there for that, it's gone. And now I meet people, I mean, that around the world that will say, oh, I just saw that thing with you and Norm and Courtney Thorne Smith. And I'll think that was a moment of my life when I was 30. Yeah. And I'm like 85 now. <laughs> like, how is that possible? You had, the funny thing about those first few years is all, it was such a great time for music. Yeah. And you and Arsenio just had this murderer's row of, of I love any sentence that starts with I know, you, you and, and Arsenio. Arsenio was <laughs> having all the hip hop bands and yeah. all the rappers from that were really that first wave. And then you, you were tapping into this whole alternative scene that was like taken off. It was so fun because- Some of that er stuff's online stuff. Yeah. Uh, you know, the tricky thing about that stuff is music is the hardest thing. Um, we're- uh, You buried at the end of the show. Well, no, but also it's hard to clear in perpetuity for legal reasons. Oh, yeah, so, yeah, yeah. Um, any guests that came on my show, we can show that for the rest of time. If a band comes on and plays a song, you can't clear it in perpetuity on the internet for legal reasons. So I'm really jazzed because uh, we're doing, in January, we're gonna come out with what I think will be the state of the art uh, website of all my stuff going back all through the NBC years, um, starting with, in 93. With the music? Not the music, uh, the music we can't do, but all of the comedy bits, the <laughs> interviews, and we're digitizing it so it's gonna look amazing. And then you can, if you thought you saw something happen on my show in 1997, but you think maybe I was high, maybe that didn't happen. Yeah. Maybe Abe Vigoda, Maybe Abe Vigoda got shot or maybe he didn't. Right. I don't remember. It was late in the show. And then there was some bumblebees. I don't remember. You can type it in and you will see that moment. That I'm really thrilled about. But the music, I mean, my first show was uh, with music was September 14th, 93. And they said, who do you want? And I said, Radiohead. And this was in 93. Yeah, that was a ballsy call. And I said, point. Radiohead. I want Radiohead to do Creep. Bang, Radiohead did creep on the show. And I remember from that moment on, we could have, it was just amazing. We could have anybody we wanted. I love music. And suddenly it was a pretty incredible feeling to get to see all these people. And some of them were, I mean, uh, Gwen Stefani uh, came on with No Doubt when that first record came out. Just, I mean, all these sort of iconic albums. Yeah. And they would come on and I look at those clips now and then I come over, I look like a 14 year old Belgian girl. I'm always like coming over like, hey, thanks a lot for coming on the show. <laughs> well, we're gonna take a break, we'll be right back. And they're always looking like, well, you're not gonna last. Uh, but it was fun, it was a blast. Yeah, I'm, so, I mean, obviously I've been watching talk shows since I was a kid. Like you, we're around the same age, like the Mike Douglas shows and Carson and, all the different incarnations. And then when Letterman showed up, um, you know, and he would do his anniversary show, but he was making fun of Carson's anniversary show, but like Carson never realized it. Yep. The whole show was set up to make fun of the Carson show, but he idolized Carson. Yes. Somehow threw Carson off the scent of, I'm actually making fun of this format. I think Carson, I'm going to say, I mean, Johnny's really aware and very smart. I think it's possible Johnny knew, but Johnny was so secure. He oh, it's been the, in the early 80s, he was definitely. The, yeah, um, well, also, I mean, but I think also with um, 
because that was his show, you know, right. it, was, uh, it was a Carson production and, and, and uh, he knew that, that Dave revered him. So I think Johnny would, would have been fine with him making fun of the form a little bit. And he so revolutionized it. Dave, were you, that, were you, were you a giant Letterman guy? Oh yeah. At that time? Uh, Cause I well, remember when Carson came, when Letterman came to LA and Carson came on the show, that was like one of the biggest moments of my life. Yeah. I was like, this is, this is vindication. Carson's coming on. Yeah. That shouldn't be one of the biggest moments of your life. Well, I'm I sorry. mean, when I was a teenager. I'm still. <laughs> there weren't a lot of girls. What? Okay. That's, you're saying too much now. You should keep this I'm oversharing. Yourself. Yeah. Yeah. Just make it. It was a really fun moment for me. It Let's was. Just rewrite that. I, I remember being uh, marginally excited about good. it. Good. There you go. Yeah. Very good. Yeah, um, I was like, this is kind of cool. Uh, yes. I was, uh, I was really influenced by, I, I was very inspired by Dave because that it was such a revolution at the time. You hadn't seen someone be funny that way. Yeah. And, um, you know, his tone was so original and spot on. I remembered watching the, the morning show. My sister, I was leaving for school. I was in high school and I had, uh, I, was, I was late to go to school and I was going out the front door and it was like the spring or something. And I remembered my sister, Kate, shouting, get back here. You got to see this. And so mm. I went back in the house thinking this better be like, what is she talking about? And she was watching his morning show and we, I just, I wrote an article about it for, I think it was Entertainment Weekly when, when Dave uh, retired that I called Suddenly Everything Was Wrong um, because everything was wrong. He didn't look like a host. Yeah. Uh, the set was wrong. It, it was not polished. The energy was wrong and it was great. You know, it's the, the true revolutionary comedy should look wrong when you first see it. Yeah. In, in anything or our art, it should look wrong. I think that's how, um, and, and so the next couple of years, um, I, I watched him through college and then, uh, desperately wanted to work for him. I did mean, you ever that, write into viewer mail? I didn't write into viewer mail. Did you? I did. I was, I'm, I was in high school and I really wanted to make it. It might even been like eighth, ninth grade initially, but never made it. Yeah. Always was waiting on those Thursday nights. Could still happen on his new Netflix show. Is he too for your mail on the Netflix no, show? If I he does, I'm, I'm going to mail. be hilarious if he did. <laughs> if, he just, he, if he went back to stuff from 83 on the, on the, and was doing it while Obama's sitting out there, that'd be hilarious. What you were saying earlier about how stuff would be on and then just disappear. That was what the, I used to tape the Letterman shows on the, on VHS, but if you missed one or if the tape didn't work, that was it. It was just gone. There's no record of it. And now there's record of everything. You know, yeah. every moment somebody has, there's videotape of it. Yeah. I, uh, there was, I mean, we sound like, well, we, we are. sound like we're really just, old We guys. sound like old guys. Yeah. Uh, we're, we have a little sterno going. We're cooking some beans. <laughs> <laughs> we're in the woods talking about those old, we're, we're both, uh, Bill and I are whittling right now. Yeah. Well, I tell you, oh, it was a time when on television. But it was very, it's very hard to explain to, you know, my assistant, Sona, who came with me today, she, she doesn't own a TV, you know, yeah. she watches everything online and, and everything's immediately accessible. And I've had this, you know, I can pull out my phone and access any moment in TV history. Right. I remember the first time I went to the Museum of Broadcasting in New York, 
I was, I don't know, like 25, I think I was a writer on Saturday Night Live and I heard about the Museum of Broadcasting and I went over there and I, I requested, there was like an old woman there and I said, I would like to see Jerry Lewis's monologue from his first late night show that's in, was this epic disaster in uh, from, you know, September, uh, you know, 14th, uh, 1962, and she was like, you wait here. And then she went away and then she came back a long time later and it was like Hogwarts, you know, there's a yeah. there's an owl and magicians are there and she hands it to me and I put it into a machine and I put on the headset and I watch literally, what, eight years later? Yeah. Just type in, you know, you can be anywhere in the world. It's just probably type online in. right now. Oh no, Jerry I've Lewis it. had a late night show? He had a late night show that was, um, a huge thing at the time. It was, uh, he was the biggest star and yeah. they paid him a fortune to do a late night show because he had guested on Carson, I think, and just destroyed. He'd done really well. So they gave him his own show and it was once a week and it was something crazy, like two hours, long, a two hour long oh, no. show. And apparently the legend is, I've read a lot about this, that Jerry did no preparation. They built a massive studio for him. They did incredible amount of, he had a desk that you could direct the show from. Everybody turned out for it. All these celebrities were in the crowd. It was huge. He had a giant like 35 piece orchestra. Ladies and gentlemen, Jerry Lewis. And he comes out and you can tell within 30 seconds, he's got nothing. And all of America tuned in because this was supposed to be a big thing. And Jerry starts saying, well, it's good to be here. And, you know, uh, okay, wait, this show's going to be two hours long. And, you know, some people wonder, how do you fill a two-hour show? Well, we, we will. We'll figure it out. I mean, and then he's talking about almost instantly about how, and I'm sick of people thinking maybe we can't pull this off because I think we can. And you're like, not one, not one <laughs> joke? Nothing? And then you can see he's kind of sweating. Oh, and then no. You're like, oh, my God. This oh. guy hosted a telethon every year for like a hundred years. Yeah, so you know and it was, a two show? it was a, a huge, um, it was one of those shows where like after the first episode, it was just, you know, everybody was talking about what the hell happened. You, you um, weren't meant to do this. And I had heard about it and I just wanted to go see it. But yeah, it was. Uh, I remember when I moved out here, went to the one in LA, the Museum of Broadcasting. It was the same thing. It was like, can I call up the Mike Douglas show? What was the famous fight with uh, Richard Pryor and Milton Berle? Oh. And you tell when uh, they started getting into it. Now it's on YouTube. You can just watch it. But right. I, I really want to see that because I'd always heard about it. And you put in the little request. And they no, go there's get these it. great things. I think there was one where Muhammad Ali and Sly Stone are together on, uh, I think it's on Mike just, Douglas. And. Sly Stone is kind of high and being goofy and Muhammad Ali is pissed. <laughs> Muhammad Ali is trying to make real points yeah. about, you know, equality and the dignity of, you know, uh, African-American race. And Sly just keeps being goofy. And Muhammad Ali is just really, I mean, it's, it's fun to see. Things are so sanitized now. It's fun to see real anger. And rage yeah. on TV. I remember the first year when we were doing Kimmel show, the Mike Douglas show was a big influence on you wanted like the kind of the chaos that could happen when you're just right. putting different people on the couch. Right. And it can happen sometimes, but then there are other times where not only does it not happen, it's just really awkward. And there's a reason. What you learn when you do late night shows is there's a reason 
the oh we should do and there's a reason nobody's doing that idea right because people have tried it and the variations of it just you know one of the things that uh i always feel like people can learn the wrong lessons from a success sometimes uh that happens a lot um i was always a fan of surrealism in comedy and yeah um you know uh is this real is this not real what's going on adding a little bit of that sort of sctv uh the fugitive guy was one of my favorites for that yeah it's like what is this yeah exactly and 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 adding that element but when you add surrealism sometimes there people who are fans of that think i get it it should just be weird all the time. You think, well, no, there's good weird. Yeah. And then there's unproductive, bad weird that goes nowhere. But, um, you know, sometimes you see people take that school of comedy and say, oh, I get it. You know, they'll learn the long, wrong lesson from early Letterman or they'll, they'll, I've had people that like, you know, liked my stuff that I was doing, you know, and and then they said, yeah, I get it. You know, it should there just doesn't have to be a joke. It can just be weird. And I'll think, no, <laughs> no you learn the wrong lesson. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. I think there's still something to something just being really funny, which I think we forget sometimes. Like, I, you know, obviously I know you have a long history with Smigel. Yep. Triumph still makes me laugh. Yeah. And he's course, been doing yeah. it now for what? Almost 25 years. No, well, now, let's see the show. My late night show started 25 years ago. And I want to say Triumph doesn't, enter the picture till maybe six or seven years in, but. So mid late nineties. Yeah. So he's yeah. 20 years of triumph. How is yeah. that dog still alive? Well, it's made of rubber. So you know, it's one of the reasons when people always ask me, how is the Simpsons still on? And I'm like, it's simple. They, the, the yeah, characters they can't age, you know, yeah. uh, triumph will, as long as you occasionally lubricate the puppet. Uh, did you Lindsay overlap o. with Farley? You at, did, at, right? At SNL? Yeah. At SNL I did. Yeah. Because they always said he was one of those, like, in a room, was just funny all the time. Well, he you was, just couldn't get enough of it. Farley was exactly what you would think you would want him to be. Meaning, yeah. you meet some people in comedy who um, uh, you think they're going to be their persona, and then you meet them, and they're very serious and kind of shy, and you're a little disappointed. Right. And then you meet other people occasionally that completely fulfill your fantasy of who they would be. Yeah. And Chris Farley was like that. John Candy was like that. They were exactly who you wanted them to be. And the first time I met Farley, I was a writer on Saturday Night Live and he came in, he was waiting to have his interview with Lorne. And so he wasn't even on the cast yet. He was just waiting to have his interview. And Lorne famously keeps people waiting. Yeah. So Farley was there, I'm not kidding, I think for two days. <laughs> oh, no. There's an office on the ninth floor that Lauren has right above the studio. Yeah. And so the second half of the week when you're working on sketches and stuff, it's, you know, Lauren is, uh, is there and he's in his office with the door shut and he's, t- he's on the phone talking to Mick Jagger or talking to Paul Simon or, t- you know, Lauren's talking to those people and whoever has to wait for him just has to wait. Yeah. And so Farley was just waiting. And I remembered saying, uh, feeling kind of bad for him. And I said, um, I think I had met him before through Odenkirk at Second City. So I said, hey, Chris, I'll show you around. And Chris was like, oh, oh, okay, good. You know, he's he's doing that guy. Yeah, oh yeah, you know, super. 
super humble Midwestern guy and bowing a lot and giggling and hee hee And then I took him <laughs> out and I started doing a fake tour uh, just through the studio. And I was like, see those cables over there? We call those cables, you know? And they're held by that cable guy right there. There's old Joe. I mean, I was giving people the wrong name. Yeah. See that guy carrying that board? Well, you'll learn more about it. And And Farley was cackling and we were just fucking around. And he got on the show. Obviously, he was hired instantly once he finally got in to see Lorne. And then uh, I think the Chippendales thing that yeah. I think Downey wrote for him, once he did that, which was pretty early. It was, it took it was off over. from there. Yeah. Were you, what was your first year at SNL? 80, I started at the very beginning. I got hired in late 87. So it was right at the beginning of. So it was right when the show was really coming back. I timed that one. I mean, luck, I'm not I'm, I'm saying I timed it. I'm making a joke. I really got lucky. I showed up at SNL. I remembered at the time. You came from not necessarily the news. Came from not necessarily the news. Good and show. Then, and then, uh, I had a rule. My writing partner, Greg Daniels, who's gone on to create. Yeah, like, what's he hasn't uh, really done much. So. Yeah, exactly. Poor guy. Um, I'm going to pass the hat for him later. Uh, <laughs> um, yeah, he drives uh, two Bugattis that are tied together <laughs> with electrical tape. Uh, you've never met a more frugal guy who's, you, you, you'd have no idea. But he, um, I used to have a rule with him when we were writing partners. I was like, we will not take any sit, we will not write for a sitcom. Yeah. I was very strict. And you I had, had high standards. I had, I did. I had high standards and I would, I literally said, we will starve before we will do this, 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 or this. We're not going to, you know, and then I had this rule, which is it's pretty at the time. If you think about it now, there's so many funny shows. There's a million funny, different kinds of so shows. It was not the case 25 years ago. No. And I had, I just said, um, I said, uh, we can work on not necessarily the news because that's a good place for us to get started. After that, our first choice is Letterman and our second choice is Saturday Night Live. And Greg was like, okay, what else? And I went, that's it. <laughs> so this is a story that people would probably hate, but we got a gig at Saturday Night Live. When we went out, there was not my first choice. I remember thinking, well, that's kind of past its prime. So SNL had had Eddie was Eddie had left. Then they, they had that, that weird transition year. Had that Donnie weird Jr. transition year, and then it had a year. Then he blows up the cast and gets yes the Phil Hartman Dana Carvey yes, cast. and then I come in. I step into that just as it's starting to pick up steam. And you have two of the greatest cast members in the history of the show. Well, Phil Plus, Hartman, Phil Hartman, best utility player in the history of comedy. He, he can, has to be on the all-time cast. Yeah, he has to be if because- it's seven, nine, whatever, he still has to be in there somewhere. Yeah, um, just him and Pete Davidson. Uh, <laughs> I just threw that out there. I don't know the guy. But anyway, um, uh, yeah, Phil Hartman, when you think about it, Phil Hartman could play convincingly a father who's meeting his daughter's date for the first time. Right. A square father. He could play a convict. He could play a juvenile delinquent. Game I mean, show host. Game show host. He could be, he could be Frankenstein. He could be a 1920s actor. He can be anything. And uh, we used Unfrozen to call him- caveman. He used to call himself Mr. Potato Head because you could just take the pieces off and put in new pieces. In. Yeah. Um, yeah, him, Dana Carvey, On Fire, John Lovitz. Um, and then, you know, I got to give it up for- And then the know, women the were women really were good. absolutely amazing. And they were communities like Jan Hooks. 
one of the best, uh, I think, cast members of all time, uh, Nora Dunn. I mean, just the fact that that these and and then while I'm there, the people that showed up while I was there, Farley shows up while I'm there. Mike Myers. Mike Myers shows up. I remember the first day he came in and he had a, a leather jacket with the Canadian flag on the back. And he was super, super, super. Is that super, true? Yeah, super, A super. A leather jacket with a Canadian flag on yeah, the back? Yeah, it's 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 really opposites when you think about it. It's a badass jacket with the Canadian flag. <laughs> it says, please, I don't want to offend you. I'm here to, I'm here in your bar. I just pulled up on my motorcycle and I really don't want to yeah. offend anybody. Uh, and then uh, Sandler shows up yeah. when I'm there and Spade and Rock. And everyone's roaming around the halls. They're all kids. Um. Did you fit in with those guys or were you I like did. the Harvard guy? No, it was actually kind of nice because I didn't feel like, uh, I didn't feel like, I hung out with, I worked Smigel, Odenkirk, Greg and I were like a unit. Tom Hanks used to call us the Boiler Room Boys. Yeah. Because we were just these guys that were always awake. We never went to sleep. We never changed our, we dressed like, we were still wearing the clothes that we wore in college. Um which is not good, by the way. Yeah. And uh, and we would stay up and just write really weird stuff and uh, and roam the halls and we were always available. And so- That was probably the best three or four year stretch for weird, quirky, couldn't be repeated SNL sketches. And those were my favorite. Yeah, because now, li- now they love to do the same one the 20, 21st time. That was like, it was on one time, that was it. Yeah, that was my, I, my favorite sketches to write were usually in the, uh, I would say, 1240. Yeah, yeah. And you know, it's so interesting. Later on, I get a late night show and it's at 1235 on NBC. And that was your that wheelhouse was, time. My wheelhouse is people are sleepy and, I, and, and my favorite sketches that I ever worked on are you know, wait a minute. Did I just see that or was I kind of half asleep? That was weird. Seth and, Meyers called those the 10 of one sketches. Yeah. Where uh, yep. I think the first Barry Gibbs show was like, they just threw it on at 12.50. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's like kind of when you throw those in. And you kind of want, uh, that's where weird stuff can grow. If you yeah. think about it, it's, you can grow really weird mushrooms if the temperature's just right and there's not too much light. There's not too much light there's not too much heat. I mean, when the show used to begin, you have to have the big sketch and you look at the show now and it's, what's their take on Trump this week and Mueller and what's their take on Kavanaugh and who's the big star they've flown in from LA to, and there's a lot of heat there and it doesn't always, it's not always conducive to like the most fun comedy. You yeah. Know? And then if you uh, look at a little later on, there's less pressure and you got a weird sketch and it's not really about anything, but it- I'm trying it, to think some of the- Like Jack Handy, for example, is one of my right. all-time favorite SNL writers. And he would, I mean, he wrote Tunsis the Cat, but he also wrote these, he'd have these great, all of us would, couldn't wait to hear his sketches read at Read Through because, you know, he'd, he'd write, he'd have such great ideas like uh, James Bond getting- captured by the villain who has a giant lair in the volcano, but the lair isn't finished yet. <laughs> and he's like, Mr. Bond, I didn't think you'd be here for six months. You know, uh, sorry, Blofeld, but uh, you know, and he's like, well, anyway, 
over there is going to be a, it's going to be a shark tank <laughs> where I would lower you into a shark tank. It's not there yet, right. but imagine, <laughs> and it was, I get, I'm one of the workmen in the background on that sketch. Uh, yeah, you were in a couple ones. Yeah. They used to throw me out there. Jim, I, I made Jim Downey laugh and he, um, he used to throw me into stuff every now and then. And it was not, I wasn't, I didn't think I should be a Saturday Night Live cast member. That was not something that I aspired to be. I didn't think I was a Dana Carvey or a Mike Myers. I wasn't that. I knew what I wasn't. Yeah. But I knew I had, I could make people laugh, but it was had to be in my persona. Do you know what I mean? It couldn't. Did you latch onto a star? Because sometimes the writers latch onto the one star and they write a lot of stuff. Or was it more uh, democratic back then? I don't think then? we did that. I don't think I did that. Um, I mean, there's obviously people... Um, you know, you'd obviously plug Phil into everything. I don't think I latched on. I remembered I worked on a a Sprockets once that worked out well with uh, with Mike Myers. I had an idea for one, and I went to him. And uh, so there were individual people that I would yeah, think, yeah. wait, I, I think I got something for you. I would say eighty percent of what I wrote was um, not cast dependent. You know, it was just a weird idea that I thought, okay. Um, it was, you know, it wasn't like, oh, this, this cast member has to do this. It was a really fun time also, like, cause it was all these kids that grew up watching the same shows in the seventies and eighties. So SNL would have like the Partridge family joke or the Brady Bunch joke or, or whatever. Or the TJ Hooker like, joke. Yeah. It was like, oh, I get that. Oh, the, you know, and now everything's so splintered. I think it would be harder to have. Here's a weird, yes, that's a, I mean, when you look at. That's actually the- Because I promise you and I watched 80% of the same shows. Yes. And we were probably like nine. And yes. I don't think nine-year-olds could say that now. No, you can't say that now. They can, the one thing that's unifying the most young people now is probably video games. Meaning yes. Fortnite, you know. Fortnite. If, if you're talking to a bunch of, uh, I have a 13-year-old son and and, a, and he would, he would, if I, if he and all of his friends were together- I think I could reference The Simpsons and Fortnite and they would know what I'm talking about. After that, it's a crapshoot. And what's really interesting is if you think about the way we grew up, we did, there's certain reference points, Starsky and Hutch, or like you said, any of those shows from 70s, yeah. uh, 60s, 70s, we can reference that and everyone knows the reference. Today, you can be in a room with a bunch of people who are your demographic they went, even some of them went to school with you. They're your friends. And you're talking about what's on TV today. You'll each list 15 different shows and there will be maybe one overlap between two of you. Do you know I what think I mean? the office has gotten to that point to some degree with the under 30 people. Yes. Well, now it's being rewatched. The Netflix. Yes. Netflix has done it with that and with Friends. And more and more with uh, Parks and Rec, too. Is Parks up. and Rec. Um, and I think The Good Place is starting to head that way, too. But it seems like they're all rewatching because those 22-minute comedies are so easy to just you bang out a season in like four hours, also, six hours. Also, I think what's really smart is stuff without a laugh track, um, mm. stuff that's not shot before a studio audience. Something happened culturally, and I maybe be might be reality television because- um, but people like things that have that documentary look and feel. Yep. And so when you look at a sitcom now where someone makes an entrance and there's applause or there's laughter, 
you know, and, and then they leave, it immediately feels fake and hokey. And I think there's a whole generation that looks at that and thinks, what the fuck is this? I felt like Shanling was the first one who kind of flipped that when he did his Showtime show. Yeah. And have the fake applause for everybody yeah. that walked in. And it yep. was the first time I was like, oh, he's making fun of. Yes. Because, you know, you watch those old Good Times episodes now or said like they'll be on some random channel. And the audience was so involved in the show. Yeah. And you you also watch things like uh, Happy Days from yeah, Happy Days 1978 one. yeah. or 1979. Fonzie makes an entrance. They're, they're I mean, first of all, the, if Happy Days- Wild is, applause. Happy Days is interesting because the first season is single camera and actually kind of cool. And there's no studio wanting it to- It looks like studio. American Graffiti. Yeah, almost. and it's actually very good. Then it switches, Happy Days switches to, I think in the second season, it switches to, um, it's shot before a live audience. People make an entrance and the crowd goes crazy and they have to wait. So Fonzie comes in and he's mad because he just found out someone stole his motorcycle and he comes in and he's mad. And everyone's like, woo! And you see Henry Winkler having to wait for like five minutes yeah. and still pretend to be mad while he's acknowledging. And you're like, this is weird. You look yeah. at it now and it feels fake. I remember that happened to Seinfeld with Kramer for like a season. Yeah. Where he every time he walked into Jerry's apartment, the crowd would applaud. I think they told the crowd not to applaud. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And he'd do the same thing. He'd be like, Jerry! And then yes. and he'd have to wait three seconds. And then everyone has to just wait on their line. Yeah. Yes. I I think you're right though about the single camera. But that's why the, I think the it's office- It's like a reaction to it. Those, those um, I think the a show like The Office is going to, it, the reason it's so relevant to, I mean, my son and daughter- have watched every single episode of The Office. Every single episode. Yeah. They and and that's their sense of humor. But when you think about it, that show when it started on NBC was a very different look and feel to everything that had been a juggernaut for NBC before that, which is Friends and, you know, uh, you know, Frasier and you know. The one, the one set where most things happened. I love the, the way subset. I used to love the way uh, people are forced to sit on sitcoms, like in, so, the lo- in the long line. That's not a circle. Yes, yeah. and I, I used to love on Murphy Brown. Um, I, Murphy <laughs> Brown was never my show. I was, I mean, uh, it's just uh, it was never my cup of tea necessarily. Uh, but uh, on Murphy Brown. They would set up that these are the most powerful people in show business and journalism, you know, Candace Bergen and her, that they're like 60 minutes and they're, they know Henry Kissinger and they also know Al Haig and they're, they, oh, she, she just had lunch with Nelson Mandela and then it's time for them to have lunch. And they all crowd around one half of a small circular table because <laughs> they have to, because it's a yeah. sitcom yeah. and you have to sit doesn't matter, you know, no, Murphy Brown would be in her office or she'd be in like a nice cafeteria and that, no, everyone gets half a table I and, was, she, and cheat out or we're not going to see you. There is the flip side of that. There's a Netflix movie that had Lucy Liu and somebody else in it that, you know, with these Netflix movies, like everyone ends up seeing them, but it was about setting up Tay Diggs and Lucy Liu, these yeah. two people that work together. But Lucy Liu ran like a sports and pop culture website that isn't much different than The Ringer. Yeah. But had this 
just amazing office, like this yep. hundred million dollar office, and yeah, and she had an assistant, and and I, I was like, whoa. Did they ever go visit anybody's office before no. they came up with this? Well, but to be I fair, like when they do that. To be fair, you have pretty much the same setup. <laughs> I came in here and it's just the amount of marble in your, in your, marble. In your yeah. entryway is absolutely stunning. About a big lemonade vat. Yeah. Greg Daniels. Yeah. When did you guys... When did you guys stop being partners? We stopped. He wanted to... He was really interested in writing a different format. Um, I think I liked, and I've always liked the shorter format. I've always liked, uh, you know, sketches. I've always liked that short format and the most realistic show. I mean, the the the, the only half hour show I could really imagine writing for was The Simpsons. Like yeah. that was my which when you think about it is so many jokes and so many uh um, same sort of energy. And then there's this three act structure, but it's very, uh, you know, as half hours go, it's, it, it was the one that I could work on. But uh, Greg always was interested in that other form. So he left Saturday Night Live. He wanted to go out to LA and um, live there. And he was in a serious relationship with his now wife. And so he wanted to leave and go to LA. So and she ruined her. things for you. Yeah, she was the Yoko. Yeah. yeah, yeah. I never knew that. Yeah. No, but uh, he wa- he wanted to go out there. It actually worked out. When you think about it, I mean- I would uh, say it worked out for both of us. It yeah. worked out for both of us. And um, we're really good friends and uh, talk to each other all the time and uh, and hang out. And it's nice. It's actually, I think if we were- when you're working with someone, there's an intensity to it that I think I, I can relax now in better better with Greg, that we are not dependent on each other. Yeah. You know, in those early years, it was really intense and we were friends, but I, I Is actually- Is it intense because of the financial implications well, or just, the career implications? We were both ambitious guys. When yeah. you're ambitious and you think, are we going to make it? Is this going to work? I mean, there was, um, I was really- I put a lot of pressure on myself, but uh, I was really worried about my career through most of the 80s and into the 90s. Always yeah. worried, like, am I am I going to make it? Is this really going to work? Am I going to be able to achieve this idea I have that's very vaguely formed in the back of my head of what I could do? And then once I hit the late night show in 93, that's just two years of sheer try to stay alive, um, it's, you know, and then, a, and it, then, you know, I don't think people really believe in this vision that, that we collectively have. And I don't think, I don't know. I think I'm starting to relax now. Yeah. yeah, yeah. <laughs> I'm 55 years old. So, yeah. Well, I think you, I watched it cause I was there for Kimmel's first season mm-hmm. where you're on, you know, you don't know what the show is yet. You're basically just trying to survive day after day after day and hope you don't get canceled. But they also don't have anyone to replace you with. Yep. So at some point, everybody just kinds of stares at each other and goes, all right, I guess, uh, yeah. Yeah. Um, good luck. And then, but you, yeah. you're just getting reps. And then after, I could see it with him after about nine months. I was like, oh, 
starting he's starting to get this now. Yeah. But how long did do. it take for you? Uh I think about a week ago at Click. <laughs> to be honest with you. Um I uh, think uh you know man, I I I don't think there was any one moment. I think there were I just started to notice that our audiences were getting better and better. Like and that, livelier. Livelier, but also I noticed that uh, people were coming to the show because they had seen it and liked it. Oh. You know, and that there were young people and they had made, I've always had really creative fans and they, they're very good artists and they- they make they made jackets they for themselves that had stuff from our show on it. Yeah, and they um, they were coming, and I remember that we started in September, and I think by the summer I noticed, wait, these crowds are they're really getting hot, and they they know me now, and they know my rhythm, and so I always thought the trick of these things, people always think that it's the host who figured out how to do the job. I think it's a two-way street. I think it's the host has to figure out how to be the best version of themselves, who they yeah. already are. But I think the audience then has to get used to their rhythm. And I have a very particular kind of thing I think is funny and a very particular sort of rhythm that doesn't look right to people right away in 93, but then started to look, you know, I, I think people started to get it. And that was always my, when I showed up at a big school, like I went to public schools in Brookline, Mass. I was never the funny guy right away. I would yeah. show up. I got a weird name. I got the weird hair. I'm this tall, skinny guy. What's his deal? I'm kind of quiet. And it took time. And that was always the case with me. And I thought it was the same thing with getting on television. I'm new, I'm gonna get picked on, you know. We've fallen Letterman too. Someone, some, like, yeah, someone, yeah. some, yeah, exactly. I, as I've always said many times, I would not have liked me had I not been me because, you know, I was mad at NBC about the Letterman thing. So then they get a complete unknown and who is this guy? So I understood the, Hostility. I also knew this is my one chance. Was there hostility though? I can't even remember at this point. It oh, was, Jesus. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Because it there felt was, like there was also, you had the Letterman versus Leno was starting at that point. No, that was, I mean, you that didn't was feel obviously like you were buried a little bit on no, the side. No, there was, there was a period of intense, um, uh, I like, mean, fuck I don't want to go back. Uh, yeah. Oh, fuck this guy. Oh, yeah. I mean, there was, you know, um, because there were more people. We had less channels back then. So the amount of people probably watching at 1230 has to be three times as many as probably oh, yeah. watching now, No, right? more people watched me in, uh, at, at 1230 and 93 uh, than watch the Super Bowl now. That's a true fact. I just- Seriously? That, no, that's- No. <laughs> I wouldn't believe I, that. <laughs> glad I had you there for a second. Uh, yeah, at the time I was watched by 65 million people a night. Um, <laughs> Jesus. But no, it was-, it was uh, no, that was back in the days where it'd be like, oh, you know, only 4 million people watched us last night. It's just yeah. late night is uh, uh, melting ice flows. We'll all be standing on ice cubes soon. But um, the cool thing is if you get through that, you get through anything. Yeah. and But there was, I mean, I there was a famous review in the Washington Post that more or less said if I died, it would be a good thing. I remember that. 
Um, so, um, but that, 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 uh, but then he later, uh, changed his mind and, and which was very nice. Actually. He didn't have to do that. He wrote it was, his, it was one of the great wood eighties in the history of journalism. It was yeah, Tom Shales, right? Yeah, yeah. yeah. And it was really, he wrote this thing where he said, okay, I was wrong. I was really mad about Letterman and uh, this is, uh, you know, and that was, um, I think he was really mad about Letterman. Like that, like this is somehow <laughs> your fault. Well, but I understood it and yeah. I understand it today. And I understand that, um, you know, there's a, there was hostility. Obviously I felt it. I'm very thin skinned and I really thought, you know, I just, I walked around thinking everybody hates me for about a solid year and a half. Uh, and then um, that started to slowly. What improve. was the moment that, that you started to realize other than that the audiences were changing? Um, I just, you know. Because you're so, when you're doing that week after week, you're just in it. Well, it's that's like the you're same. on like a hamster wheel. Yeah, that's the thing is that I think the thing that saves you in that situation is you have, um, you don't have time to get in your head. Yeah. It's, uh, it's like, uh, you know, you're on a baseball team. You've got to play so many games. And so you can commit three errors in one game and be booed off the field, but you're back there the next day. Right, trying to go three for four. You just have to keep, you know, it's the repetition. It's the cockpit time over and over and over again. And then at a certain point, um, you, that protects you in a way from, I didn't have time to read everything. I didn't have time to know that, I think Playboy Magazine that year, that, you know, like in their list of like stuff for the year said, you know, you know, worst decision ever, you know, hiring Conan to replace David Letterman, you know, like that idiot Conan, you know, that was actually in a magazine. Um, and I saw it and I thought, oh, there's a centerfold in here somewhere. <laughs> Is there nudity in this magazine yeah, too? Yeah, it was the one issue with no nudity because uh, they, they wanted to focus more on how I sucked. Um but uh, I think the the one thing that was good for you, like in retrospect, was, you know, and I think Letterman had this too. Letterman, when his show was on those first couple of years, he had this whole new generation of people that were coming up, right? Yeah. So his his staple guests were always Seinfeld and Leno and Michael yep. Keaton and Tom Hanks. And right. He was tapping into this new generation. Yeah. And then you had a lot of the same thing because you had all the SNL people you worked with, but then you had this new generation of comics that were coming up. And you kind of had your people after no, it's really, a while. It is really fun that we quickly just, you know, got these people. And I think- it's, You and Arsenio, I think. Yeah, both of you guys. Again, when you think Arsenio, <laughs> you think Conan. Uh, we, um, no, we were really fortunate because you you come up with your group and people that who, you, you share their style of comedy. And then you do all this. I, I was talking to Will Ferrell the other day and we were just- tr I couldn't remember half the things he was bringing up. He was bringing up, you remember the time I came on your show and I, you know, I, uh, I had a gun and we kept it quiet for half the interview, but then I leaned forward and you could see that I had a gun. And then <laughs> you and I had this whole thing worked out. And I was like, I don't remember. Oh, God. We did so much aggressively weird stuff. And it was just like-minded, you know, and then we became, I remember there were people who only wanted to come on the show if they could, 
pretend that they needed dialysis halfway through, you know, and you'd be like, oh, can't I just talk to you? <laughs> like there's some people I just wanted to talk to. Yeah. No, man. This would be better. I, I, I yeah. wanted, I've seen other people do this. And it was, sometimes it was people who were maybe comedy wasn't their forte. Yeah. They had seen other people do it. And they're like, no, you know, I want to pretend, I want to do a conceptual thing. Really, B. Arthur? Um, I don't think you should do B. Arthur. <laughs> I threw her under the bus. She's coming in right now, actually. Yeah, exactly. Her ghost. Well, I remember like, what was it? Like, oh, three, oh, four. It just seemed like you jumped the level with that show. And then it became like the, where's he going? What's next for him? Yeah, yeah, well, yeah. All these networks yeah. are courting him and all yeah, that yeah. stuff. yeah. And it it seemed like it was fast, but it really wasn't fast because you it wasn't. The show it's for funny, 11 it's fast years. to other people. Yeah, you know, do you have kids? I do. I have okay. a thirteen and a ten. Okay, so we're in the same boat. Yeah, uh, I have a thirteen and a fifteen, but similar situation. But you notice when other people come to your house, they're like, "Oh my god, your kids!" Yeah, wow, you're this huge, is crazy. huge. That's not how you feel because yeah. you see them every day. Yeah. So I'm always like, "What are you talking about? They're the same." And they're like, "No, they're not, man." This is Tommy Chong visiting me, by the way. Uh, <laughs> hey, man. Hey, Dave. And so they they come by and they, they're they blown away, but you're there. So I'm there for every second. So nothing felt, I've had people say to me, wow, 25 years on the air. That must just seem like it just blew by. No, it fucking didn't. Yeah. Because I was there for every second of it, sweating it. So no, it feels like 75 years. <laughs> it's like 130 years. Yeah, it feels like, yeah, the... You know, uh, and how's, so- How's your life different if you go to Fox in 04? Um, no. Are we sure a late night show could have worked on Fox? Uh, I was not, that was, you know, when I was, that was our, a big serious offer to go to yeah. Fox. And um, I thought about it really seriously. And I swear to God, the biggest reason I wanted to stay- was it really haunted me the way Dave yeah. left NBC. And I wanted to be connected to my work. I didn't want to be separated from my work. I was really- Oh, like your 11 years of library yes, stuff? exactly. All? I wanted to be connected and I didn't want to leave NBC. Um, and so I remember thinking, I'll, I'll just stay. You know, I don't know. How much was the Tonight Show part of that? Just like at that the, time, not the lure of at it? that time. I didn't, I didn't think that was a possibility because that was not, you know, that was kind of floated as a possibility. Yeah. But I remember thinking, I'm not sure. But um, I wasn't that interested. Uh, I mean, ultimately, and I, I don't regret. Actually, I don't regret anything. I don't. I, I think I made the right call at the time, which was. Let's just stay here. And I ended up doing, what, four or five, five more years of the yeah. late night show at NBC, which I loved. So, um, you know, I ultimately, you know, think that was uh, going to Fox like 10 years in. I don't know. Wouldn't have felt right to me. Didn't feel right then. It doesn't feel right now. And I think there's a reason they really have never had a Monday through Friday 11 o'clock show. Right. Yeah, I've, it's funny because, you know, I've obviously had a couple of things too that people could say, would you do that over again? I always feel like it's part of the journey, you know? You, you, some things work out some ways, some things work out in other ways, but you are call you your, happy now? You call your addiction to heroin a That part, of the part I would do over again, but yeah. some of the other ones. That was a huge mistake. Where does where does the late night format go now? What uh, happens you know, to it? First of all, I'll preface by saying I have opinions, 
but nobody knows anything. Yeah, yeah, no, I, I don't, and, I'm and not I, saying you I, I don't want to be, I don't want to pretend to be the oracle that knows, but I- But uh, you're watching how your kids consume media. Yes. Well, I definitely, for myself personally, wanted to blow things up. Um, I wanted to blow things up when I realized that I was killing time on the air. Yeah. That I was doing an hour a night after 25 years and- Hurting, hurrying it up with the first guest so I can get to the second guest so I can get to the, you know, musical group so I can, or the third guest. And I thought, this is not, um, this is not what these shows should be anymore. I, yeah. don't, I really don't believe that. I know how people consume my work now. And the good news I mean, there's, there's good and bad with all of it. There's a lot that's changed, but um, no late night show has the command of the field the way Dave did in you know his late night show period or in his uh, uh, early CBS show period or the way Johnny did. It's just not gonna happen again. There's gonna be fads and trends. They last about sometimes, you know, and, uh, but there's so many of these shows that, that's the the bad news if you're a late night host. The good news is that if you've got something good, a lot of people see it. Yeah. And um, they see it again and again and again. And so the good stuff is in a way almost more potent than it ever was. But I wanna make sure that the chasm between what I'm doing online and what I'm doing on the linear show isn't so wide. Cause it feels like there's the linear show and then there's the the stuff that happens online. I want to see if I can pull them together closer so that- Well, podcasts have to be a part of that. Well, that's why. I mean, yeah. so right now the idea is, right now I'm on, I'm doing, uh, we took a hiatus so I could do a tour. I'm doing a tour where I can go to cities. I just finished uh, doing a bunch of cities back East. I leave tomorrow and I do Atlanta and I do uh, Nashville. I love- live audiences, love it. That That's one of my favorite things. And I love playing in, in these theaters and I'm touring with these really hilarious standups. And I, I go out first, I do half an hour, then they each do about 15 minutes. Then I do Q and A at the end, which gets really wild and yeah. it's fun. I live for that. And then we have a digital team with me. They record a lot of that stuff. We chop it up, we're putting it out there. And I'm hoping that this, why can't that just be your late night show where you just travel to well, every city 250 times a year and you're just on the road? My wife would leave me pretty quickly. Uh, <laughs> Other and, than no, that. No, actually, my <laughs> wife might prefer it. Uh, <laughs> but, I, but I do think what I'm looking for, I'm look, what I'm looking for is a, you know, the booking of celebrities can, some, can so often drive this tempo of these late night shows. And right. I still wanna talk to celebrities and I still wanna do that, but I wanna make sure that I have maximum freedom. I'm just, I'm being a dick. I'm kind of saying I wanna do it exactly the way I wanna do it because I've been doing it a really long time. So what I'd like to do now is exactly what I wanna do. Yeah, And I don't wanna, I wanna make no concessions. Or it sounds like concessions. you just need to do a podcast and well, occasionally do tours. I'm doing a podcast. Conan O'Brien uh, needs a friend that drops uh, the 19th. 
November and uh you yeah I promise you you're gonna love it because uh I've been doing it I can tell from your show like there were moments where you'd be like oh this should just keep going but it couldn't it's like all right let's start a commercial and then I can't it's kind of the moment's over yeah and uh what's I've done about we banked a, a bunch and I've absolutely loved them they're it's a great and also I have to say I mean coming in today and this isn't work. I mean, to me, this is this is a really great conversation that I'm yeah. enjoying. It's nice to hang out with you and talk about this stuff. So it doesn't feel to me like, oh boy, you know, had to go grind that out. Um, well, part of it is knowing who would make for a good podcast, though, which you le- which I kind of learned the hard way over the course of twelve years. But when you're on a bad podcast, it's like a bad date. Well, the other thing, have you noticed that when you don't know? Uh, sometimes I've been on a podcast and there's no end point. It just can go on forever. You know, a, yeah. even a bad date, there's a natural, well, they brought the check. And <laughs> so peck on the cheek and I'm going to get my Uber and I'll see you later. But when a podcast, when someone wants to really go deep, yeah, going deep here with Conan and it's been, and you're like, wait a minute, I think it's been five hours. And they're like, now we're going to do some improv. You're like, I'm looking, Seven more. you feel like you're in a burning building and you'd go out <laughs> through the window if you could. So, you know. What it, What about you and Greg Daniels working together again? One well, more time? Yeah, well, we did. We worked together on a show we really loved. Like writing a movie? Uh, movie? No, I've never, I, I don't think I could You never do that? Never wrote a movie. I never wrote a movie. What was the show you worked on that you loved? Well, we, were, we worked uh, on a show that was on TBS. We initially- um, called People of Earth that we really liked and people liked it. Uh, but then we had trouble keeping the cast. <laughs> the cast kept having other things they needed to do. Uh, but it was a, it was a show we did uh, together that um, we didn't create it, but but uh, Greg was the showrunner and it was my production company. It was just fun working with each other again. Yeah. It was a good time. I'm really jealous of the writing partner thing. Cause I really feel like I, I just wish I had, you know, you need luck, right? Like, what if you don't meet Greg Daniels? Do you have a writing partner at that point? No, I wasn't. It has not, to be like the I was fit, not right? someone who was going to have, I didn't even think about having a writing partner until I met Greg. Uh, and we met late in school. We met, uh, we didn't really get to know each other until senior year. Because you fill in the blanks for each other a little bit. Yeah. And and and, and, and it was interesting. We, we did compliment each other really well. And, uh, but also- when you're starting your career and you're 21 and you're leaving and you're going to LA and all you've ever known is Boston. You need somebody else. I mean, all I knew was Brookline, Boston. That's yeah. it for 21 years. And then you get on a cheap airline flight and you go to Los Angeles and you land here and you've got to make it in this weird business. Doing it with someone, a friend who's also yeah. an East Coast person who you can share it with. That was huge. I mean, I, I, I wish I had met somebody like that. I've always Koppelman and Levine, the guys who do billions. Yeah. Those guys have been together for like 25 years, like a married right. couple, but they just work really well together. And I, I went and I watched them on the set and yeah, you know, they're just on the same page and I think right. it's pretty rare. I can also see how it would go badly. It after could go badly. Years, yeah. Especially if one person thinks, yeah. you know, the other or whatever. I, I hold out really, hope. I think you're going to meet a guy. I really do. I hope so, man. I this have, is why I keep talking about it. I just want keep bringing somebody out, out there like, hey, Simmons. I wish I had a guy in my life. 
I didn't even think of the fact that you were Brooklyn and then Cambridge, mm-hmm. and then you came to L.A. That's yeah, dramatic. That was it. I went from God zero to. I mean, because you're where are you from? I was initially Chestnut Hill. Chestnut Hill. Yeah, I used to go to that mall. You know that big mall in Chestnut Hill. Of course, that's I used to steal hockey cards. I always thought I'd meet my girlfriend when I was in high school and had bad skin. Yeah, and guess what? It didn't happen. Did you ever go to the dump and look for Playboys behind the Chestnut Hill mall? My brother Neil used to go to the dump with his friend John Little, and they would throw uh, old TVs off the top of a mound and watch the picture tubes explode. That was my. (laughs) A lot of great stuff. There's a lot, man. That dump. Yeah. Yeah, my parents got divorced. I was there through seventh grade, and then my dad stayed, but I moved with my mom to Connecticut. So I was basically back and forth the next four years, Stanford. Okay. And uh, so I was like, I still felt like I lived in Boston, but I was really not there nearly as much as I wanted to be. And plus the sports was like- Well, then it gets really screwed up because you're amongst, in Connecticut, it's weird because- Oh, you're like, you're not in New York- you don't know, like I've seen stores. I'll go into a store in Connecticut, like in sort of the Litchfield area. Yeah. And it's selling Yankee hats, Yankee caps. But then you drive two more miles and you're in a store and they're only right. selling Red Sox hats. It's bizarre. And you think, this is weird. This is like living in Maryland during the Civil War. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> Are you for the North or for the South? Do you know what I mean? I have no idea. It's very strange. And then Boston, as you know, is- it's so kind of distinct. And then I, Connecticut is not distinct. Yeah. So I was just there. I was just in Boston and the intensity of- Did you go for the baseball or something else? Well, I was there. I did the tour. I was doing uh, two shows at the Wilbur Theater. And then I mm. went and I hung out with my folks. But I was noticing everyone in Boston wears a Red Sox cap. And it's, it's so, amazing. But what's so funny to me is they wear it like- you know, I root for the Red Sox. You're like, you don't need to tell it. We know. Do you know what I mean? We're on Newbury Street. Yeah. And, and your name is Sully. I get it. You don't need the Red Sox hat. But all my brothers wear Red Sox caps all the time. And it's like they should just put them on squirrels in Boston. It's like know? being in a gang. Yeah. It's, it's like good. our gang. But I so- went back for the two World Series games and it's just, it was the best of Boston. It was just yeah. people showing up super early. Everyone's got drinks and right. I was sitting near the uh between the third base and left field. We were right on the wall and the you know, they have the outfield umpires sure, yeah, for yeah. the World Series. Yeah. So poor guy's like ten feet away. And you know, the Boston people yeah. they they gotta start talking to him. It's like, hey blue, you know, yeah, just yeah, up yeah. for nine innings. The poor guy's like, God damn it. I that's what he short hears straw. That's what he hears in his sleep. Uh <laughs> I so I could only go to one World Series game. Yeah. Because I was, uh, I've been working so much. But there was one game and traveling, and there was one game I could go to. Not the eighteen inning game. No, there was one game I could go to, and I knew there was one game that I had that Turner gave me tickets for. Oh, Game Five. Oh, so in L.A. and I didn't know is there going to be a Game Five? What's what's going to happen? Turns out, Game Five. So I take my son, and we go there, and we're both wearing Red Sox hats and jackets. I've got this great jacket I got a long time ago that's like a vintage Ted Williams era. Ooh. And I have a Ted Williams story after this I want to tell you, but like a Ted Williams era baseball, the, the, the ja- a recreation of that jacket. Yeah, yeah. So I'm watching the game with my son and then we get to the last two innings and it becomes clear that the Dodgers are going to lose and we're in Dodger Stadium. I was in there too. It was, yeah. The Red Sox fans started moving up. I was one of them. Yeah. We had 
really good seats. And then we were like, screw it. Yeah. I said, come with me, boy. This is how it's done. Because all the other fans left. Yeah. And everyone, they were like, uh, Conan, Red Sox fans let me take, it was, and it was near the uh, back behind home plate, just like for the last inning. But this is the difference between LA and Boston. There's a lot of differences, but I'm there. And Dodgers fans start to realize it's not going to happen for them. So they stand up. They, and these are people with like their faces painted blue. Yeah. And they have Dodgers shirt, everything. The hat, everything. They stand up, they turn, they saw me and recognized me and they saw my Red Sox stuff and they'd say, <clears throat> well, Conan, it's not going to work out for us this year, but you guys had the better team. Congratulations. <laughs> and then they shook my hand. And then it, they'd be like, better luck next year. You know, I mean, uh, well, we'll see about next year. And then, they, and then the next person would go up. Well, Conan, Dodgers fan all my life, you know. Uh, lost my wife this year to cancer. And her dying wish was that they'd win the series. But it didn't happen. Oh, well, Boston's the better team. Good good day to you, sir. And I and I remember thinking if if this role was reversed. It wouldn't go as well. And I was at Fenway. Yeah. And the Dodgers were about to clinch at Fenway. Yeah. I and and if Boston fans saw a Dodgers fan, he'd pull his heart out through his chest and eat it in front of his child. Yeah. Do you know what I mean? It was just this funny. It I couldn't relate to of, it. You think you're better than me now? You think you're better than me? I'll fucking throw a battery up your ass. Well, that didn't work out for us. You clearly had the better team. I really admire Cora. And that Mookie is incredible. Well, better. We'll see what happens next year. Good day to you, Conan. I was like, what kind of what kind of sports fans are you? I see the perspective. I have perspective. Life is long. Wow. Dodger fans. They're, so, 30, they're on 30 years now. Yeah. The Boston fans, this is like the the it's this run that has nothing in common with how any of us grew up. Yep. No, no, no. I it's just a lot of winning and it doesn't make sense and it feels just surreal and I don't know how to react to it. And also, uh the old Red Sox teams were they were so haunted by their curse, whatever you want to call it. Yeah. It was in their heads. These new teams, since 04, they don't, they think they have as much right to win as anybody. Yeah. Which is a completely different mindset. Yeah. And, you know, this team, even, you know, uh, even when they lose an 18 inning game, you thought like, oh, that's gonna, that's gonna take the bone marrow out of them. That's, they're gonna have a hard time bouncing back from this. They're like, oh no, 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 we're still gonna win. We, yeah, they had like a team meeting after the 18 inning game and they were like, all right, we all good? Yeah. Let's do it. We'll get him back tomorrow. Yeah. And uh, that's yeah. just wrong. If that I mean, had happened in our childhood, it would have, they probably would have had to shut down the city for like a week. Yeah. I had, I wanted, just one story. I was driving over here today and I was like, I got to tell you this story, which is I have one picture. That's not true. I have a couple of pictures on my wall in my study from my late night show. Yeah. I've got, you know, okay, me with Obama. That's a picture. Um, I've got, me with Dave, I think you in, and Melania. in 94. Uh, yeah, me and Melania Trump, the nine times she's been on. Um, uh, and then uh, I have me with Ted Williams. Ted Williams came on. The splinter. He came on my show and it reminds me of this time, senior year in college. It's spring and I decide, you know, I was a good kid, but I decided, screw it, I'm getting out of here. I'm going to play hooky with some friends of mine who had already graduated. 
And one of them is Jeff Martin, who was working as a sports writer in Boston and went on to, he's a great comedy writer. Um, he and a couple of his friends were gonna go down to Florida to watch the Red Sox uh, spring training. And I'm at school and he said, come on, just, it was like Ferris Bueller, like just skip, just skip and fly down. So I did, I'd never done anything like that before, but I just left school. I blew off classes, I blew off everything. I flew down and we had a blast. We drove around in one car. We only ate fast food. We played mini golf and we- That sounds like Florida. Yeah, and we watched uh, the Red Sox. So we're there watching the Red Sox at their spring training camp. And I look over and there was a young prospect named Sam Horn at the time. Yeah. Who could hit the ball like a mile when he could hit it. I don't think it ever panned out for him, but Sam Horn was just amazing. And he was talking to someone and looked like he was getting batting tips. And I'm looking, I'm like, who's he talking to? And I realize that's Ted Williams. Ted Williams was there and he was the hitting coach and he's talking to Sam Horn. And this is 1985, April of 85. So I, I'm like, I want to hear what he's saying to Sam Horn. That's Ted Williams. I got to find out what he's telling. Greatest hitter of all time. What's he telling Sam Horn? So I make my way. There's this long chain link fence and I try to sneak all the way around the chain link fence so I can, and then I get right up and I'm as close to Ted Williams as I am to you. And he's talking to Sam Horn and it looks like an intense conversation and I eavesdrop. And Ted Williams is bitching to Sam Horn because he had to take his grandchild the night before to see the movie, The Last Starfighter. And (laughs) Ted Williams was like, here I am thinking I'm gonna get this profound, oh, we swing under the ball and up at, you know, and and up to the right and then, you know, whatever. And he's like, God damn it, they're out in space. And there's goddamn aliens and then they're on earth. And I didn't know what the goddamn fucking thing was all about. And I couldn't believe it. And then I thought to myself, I would love it if Ted Williams, cranky, legendary old Ted Williams, reviewed Reviewed movies. movies. (laughs) I would just, you know, like, you know, all right, today's movie, Ted, is uh, whatever. We're going to- We're going to- When Harry met Sally. Yeah, we're going to look at Harry met Sally. Well, God damn it. I tried to watch this and she's, what she's doing in that restaurant is vulgar and God damn it. Why the- (laughs) All right, well, join us next week. Unbelievable. When we, when we like, talk about like water for chocolate. Oh, God damn it. <laughs> Foreign film, God damn. Poor Sam Horan probably thought he was getting a tip. Yeah. He just said he didn't get to hear about the he last said, Starfighter. He just heard. <laughs> That's amazing. I thought when you started telling that story, I thought you were going to tell the story that you were there. Sam Horan hit this legendary spring training home run. And I was at the game, but we left the inning before because my buddy Gus had to go. And then we found out he hit this home run in the football stadium. Yeah, yeah. And I'm still mad about it like 31 years later. So I'm when glad I was there. That story. He did smash a windshield on a car in the parking lot. Mm. Uh, I did see that. I didn't, um, but yeah. I Same guess, I guess his thing was when he did hit it, it, went a little it was lot. like it went the natural. Lot. It just wouldn't stop and lights would explode. Did um, you ever get used to LA? Other than the uh, fact that the Dodger fans congratulate you when you win the World Series? You know, I'm not built genetically to live out here. Uh, it's, you know, I am, 
really genetically engineered to live like in a peat bog in Northern Ireland. So I'm, what I'm never going to be used to, and I don't mean, it, when I say in a peat bog, I mean literally yeah. in the mud, covered in moist turf. That's where I should be. I don't, I'm not supposed to be here. What I do like, because um, I lived for years and years and years between Saturday Night Live and the late night show, I did 20 years in Manhattan. It, I love Manhattan, but it never felt like home because when you grow up in Boston, it's... I was scared in New York when I was a kid. Yeah. And I was told, all my friends said, if you go to like at the height of the, in the seventies, the height of that great rivalry and Carlton Fisk and Thurman Munson, I was told that if you wore a Red Sox cap at Yankee stadium, you'd be killed. Yeah, they'd stab you to death. They would stab you to death and that the police wouldn't do anything. And I believed it because that's how intense it was. I really believed that. I don't so, know if that was necessarily untrue advice either. Right. I think they would- Make some effort to solve the crime, <laughs> but eventually, yeah, they'd make a they'd make a show of trying to solve the crime. But um, that'd be a good cold case show where you just solve Boston fans that were murdered at Yankee Stadium, and it's so clear who did it. But they're like, "Well, I guess we'll never know." No, 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 it's really clear. <laughs> That's the guy covered in blood, right? Yeah, there. it's that guy over there in the Yankees hat who's covered in blood. <laughs> well, another case that will go unsolved. But yeah, that was, uh, I was, I love, I loved Boston. I mean, uh, I loved New York and I loved living there, but it never felt like, well, this will be my home. Cause I thought eventually they'll find out I'm a Sox fan and murder me. I, I went a step further. I just, I could never have lived there yeah. at any point. I just I, see being around the Yankee hats. I feel the same way when I go to a Laker game and I'm around all the jerseys. Like I actually feel like uncomfortable. It's unsettling I, I was, to be in that mix. My son- was in a league. Um, we came out here and he was in a league where, uh, you know, playing with these other kids and they just, it was kind of random, but which, and the, and the, and you know, the teams were, you know, the Pistons, the, oh, yeah, yeah. you know, the, 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 the Lakers, the Celtics, the Knicks, and it just random. And my, my son was like seven and, he was in this league and I would go to his games and the team that he was assigned to was based on like literally where you lived, the luck of the draw, we were the Lakers. Uh. So I would go and my son was, you know, seven years old and wearing a Lakers jersey and he'd get on the court with his other friends. And I, I kind of learned like at first it was jarring and I'd have to take a picture of him and send it send it home and my brothers would give me shit about it. Photoshopped like, the jersey. Yeah, yeah. yeah, exactly. I should have Photoshopped it. But, um, but I got over it and I just enjoyed watching my son, you know, kind of try to play basketball at seven years old or whatever. And then one day, uh, Mark Wahlberg shows oh, no. up because his son's in the same league and he's talking to me and he's like, what the fuck are you doing, man? <laughs> He's really mad. And I was like, well, you know, this is where his, his friends are on this team. He's like, oh, fuck. My son, no. We like, he like, we, we moved to where my son would be on the bus. <laughs> he just would not. I forget what he did. He did some extraordinary thing. He didn't literally move, but he took extraordinary measures. He just pulled some Mark Wahlberg shit. He pulled some Mark Wahlberg shit to make sure that his son was wearing a Celtics uniform and he could not believe that I was letting my son wear a Lakers uniform. This was the original plot for Mile 22. Yes. Then they they flipped it. They flipped it. 
Yeah. Yeah. My son was a junior Laker one year and I didn't feel good about it, but he was six. Like at that no, point. I didn't feel good about happy it. They're but... not still pooping on themselves at age yes, six. So exactly. The they, half of them, they get the ball and they just sit on it yeah. and uh, they think it's something to rest on. And I, but I realized like the level of, okay, this is the difference between us. Yeah. I will accept my son wants to be on a team with his friends. He can wear a Lakers uniform. You um, probably contacted the commissioner of the local league. I think you probably threatened him with some of you and your friends came, from Somerville came by and threatened him yeah. with the leg of a chair. And, <laughs> and now he's wearing a Celtics uniform. I think I think uh, Mark Wahlberg, he wakes up at 2.30. Yeah. Did you read Says that story? his prayers. He, he de- does his workout routine. He has eggs. And then he just threatens the commissioner of whatever league. Yeah, whatever league. Until he's yeah. on the right That's team. what's in there. It's in the itinerary. I'm always jealous of those people that get up. Like Bob Iger, they always said he got up at four. It's stupid. Gets up at four and does the treadmill. It's not, it's, I don't it's know. How, how do you do that? I love it's, sleeping. Yeah, it's also a mistake. It's going to be, uh, let's just see how long they live. You know, <laughs> I swear to God, they're all, it. Sleep is more important. I swear to God, need, sleep is more. Six and when people tell me that they, I get three hours of sleep and then I get up and I have a whey protein shake and I run 65 miles and then I pour lava up my ass. I just think, okay, enjoy that. Our, our time here on this earth is very short mm. and you're fucking it up. Might be shorter than you think. Exactly. Conan. Yes. This was a pleasure. It's not, this is great. I didn't want to keep you for seven hours. This is right around the Image. time. I usually go around 80, 80 minutes. This, this is, is good. Uh, you can always come back. You should just, you know, just, I go 80 minutes. <laughs> I'm excited. That should, be your, that should be, that should be your line in a bar. I, go, go I just Strong went, 80 minutes. I just did 80, I went 80 minutes strong. With who? Conan O'Brien. Okay, well, that's your, straight. that's your thing, yeah. No, this is, uh, I'm I mean, excited I've, to listen to your podcast. Thank I mean, you, and you know what? Uh, congrats on this one. Uh, I, I swear to God, they 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 told me, they said, uh, there's literally like two podcasts you should do if you want to get the word out on your podcast. Oh, and that's And you were nice. one of them, and I was happy because uh, I've listened to yours, and I was like, oh, yeah, I'd, I'd love to talk to him, and we can- Well, while we're passing around compliments, he, I would be remiss if I said our- the people here, you had a big impact on a lot of them. Oh, that's cool. Yeah, especially the, uh, you know, the show, the NBC show from the early days. Yeah, yeah. Pre-internet. Yeah. Once the internet came in, it kind of screwed things up in a lot of different ways. Sure. But that sweet spot of like 89 to no, 96. Sweet time, yeah. The stuff that was impactful really was really no, impactful. No, it's not. It's, it's a nice, I'm very. And then it just kept going. I'm but, very grateful. I'm yeah. like my it's word. It's a cool time. My word is I'm grad. I, and I say this to, I say this all the time to people that got in on the, around the time I did. I'm like, wow, we just, I, the fact that I got to make comedy with so many amazing people, yeah. just dumb luck, you know? And just, I'm really blessed. It's a nice thing. What's Smigel's next act? Uh, he, is, he is unstoppable. He's an unstoppable force. He's, on, one of, he's one of my favorite email people. Yeah, yeah. He's, he's some great. He'll send me just these random crazy NBA emails or. He is, you know, Robert, his next, you know, first of all, he's, he just contacted me. I've been touring, so we're not doing shows right now. We're going back in January. And he said, uh, he's like, oh, I have a good idea for Triumph, but you guys aren't on the air. And I was like, well, you know, see if like someone else wants to do it, you know, just 
and so he he went and did it. Uh, yeah, he did it for, last week. He did yeah. it for Colbert, uh, and it was really funny. And I was thinking, yeah, Robert is the most prolific comedy writer I've ever known, and I've known them all. No, he has he's an endless fountain of ideas. He'll have five ideas at one time. Yeah, and so his burden is just figuring out usually which idea to follow. That is not most people in comedy's problem. Most people are trying to come up with one good idea. He's usually got like, yeah, I've got, I've got these nine ideas. And he'll write me these really long emails describing each one in detail. And I'm like, I like the first, yeah. do that one. Yeah, but listen to the second. <laughs> I like that one too. Do one of those two. Here's the third. I would do one of those three. <laughs> <laughs> Wait, there's eight more. Yeah. Yeah, he, uh, well, oh, this is a good last question. What sketch at SNL were you the most jealous of that somebody else came up with? Wow, that's a really good one. Uh, man, man, it would probably be a Jack Handy sketch just because his mind was so different. Yeah. And I'd think, how did you think of that? And... I don't know that it's one sketch that Jack Candy wrote because he wrote so many, but he would just think of an idea like Johnny Acid, which was, uh, you know, he was sort of making fun of in the 50s and 60s on TV, cowboys had special skills. There was the rifleman who was really good with a rifle, you know, and then there's a guy who was really good with a whip. And then yeah. there was a guy who was really good with a knife. And then there was a guy who was really, and so he came up with Johnny Acid. And he carried vials of acid and he'd throw acid <laughs> at people. And it just bummed everyone. Everyone in the saloon would be like, someone would be like, you better be moving on. I think you should be moving on. And Johnny Acid would throw acid at him and the guy would scream as his face burned. And everyone there would be like, not cool, man. That was bad. Bummed everyone out. And there was a song about Johnny Acid. Yeah. And I thought, shit, I wish I had thought of that. So probably Jack Handy. That was, there was a lot of songs with the sketches back then. Yeah. Like the little like quick snappy. We, I remember we just thought up. we had to. We wrote a yeah. sketch for Tom Hanks called Mr. Short-Term Memory. Oh yeah. And I remembered Robert saying, well, we need a song for it. And so we wrote, you know, I think it was Mr. Short-Term Memory. He shouldn't have sat under that pear tree. <laughs> right. Now he has no memory. He'll never know, but he lo you'll love him so because he's Mr. Short-Term Memory, you know. Why? Why did everything need a song? But we just Pat was like that too. It's time for yes. androgyny. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, 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 yeah. There was like this five years where there was, there was, but it was always good. There was a lot of game show, Not always game good. show sketches too. <laughs> <laughs> Look again. That's the wonderful Look thing back about under that hood. The wonderful thing about being a fan of something is that your mind does its own editing. What do people mention more to you, Simpsons or Saturday Night Live? Must be Simpsons, right? It's Simpsons. Yeah, yeah Simpsons is just when I tour there's a religion and it's worldwide and they know the episodes. That's why I didn't even want to bring it up. And they you. know, and they know stuff that I don't know because guess what? I stopped writing there 25 years ago. And you were only there for like two, three years, right? I was there, yeah, a little over two seasons. And again, I was there at a nice sweet time. And but it was, was like the first famous season yeah. that you were there. And I loved it, but- I don't, people will ask me trivia and I'm like, I don't know what you're talking about. I'm rediscovering the Simpsons through my son. My son loves the Simpsons and he's watching all of them and I'm watching them with him. That's our thing. They don't get to watch. Did TV. you get to do the whole? Uh, 
I wrote on this one. Son. You know what? Sort of kind of cool. It's the first time I've seen him show a glimmer of respect for, for the old man. Impressed at all? By we you? watched one of my episodes. I think it was Homer goes to college, and he's. It said it came up written by Conan O'Brien, and he happened to see that, and he just like looked over at me. I was like, "Yep, the old man." I could just see a little moment of him thinking, "My dad might have been worth something once," you know. <laughs> Then it was a, a minute later, he didn't care about me again. My son was impressed when we were in Orlando in August and Triple H came up to me with the big handshake. Oh, okay. And he was like, oh. Like, I was like, all right, that's the only time I guess I'm going to impress and then you. then later on, found out you yeah. paid Triple H. <laughs> yeah, I did. I, I, it wasn't I, even Triple H. It was, it was a guy after. who, it was three people who wear a costume and play Triple H at parties. <laughs> Uh, good luck with everything. Hey, thanks, thanks for coming so much. on. Hey, yeah, I'll come that was back. Great. Yeah, it was, yeah uh, I'll shake it. your hand. Even though no one's seeing it, we that. just shook hands. Thank you. That was awesome. All right, take care. <laughs>